0: You, 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 you know ID in the D in the town all day. ID in the D in the F-E-A. You, you know I-D-I-D in the D in the town all day.
1: ID in the DNA in F-E-A. E, Let's remember some years sponsored by Pagliacci Pizza, our friends at Pagliacci Pizza.
0: Because Pagliacci is from the 206, and so are we.
1: There you go. Uh, by the way, I picked up some Pagliacci Pizza earlier tonight. Went for a combo PSR and then the uh, Grand Salami.
0: There we go. Half and half.
1: That so was quite uh, delicious.
0: I have had a lot of poliacci pizza lately. <laughs> maybe I should put together some notes uh, because every Friday I've been getting poliacci and getting mm-hmm. two different pizzas, and then also like getting a half. So mm-hmm. it's basically three pizzas every time, and I want to maybe do some rankings. I've I'm had quite that. a few of their seasonals.
1: Yeah. They do have new seasonals now going on here.
0: I got, I got one of those. One is a uh, bacon uh, leek pizza. Yeah. That's what you got? I got that on Friday.
1: What was the review?
0: Uh, it's pretty good.
1: It's sounding like it's not going to be at the top of the rankings.
0: It's not going to be at the top of the rankings. I'm, I'm a little bit more of a traditionalist. When it comes to pizza, I mean, the things that I really like at Pagliacci are, like, ricottas and goat cheeses and stuff like that. And I do like the olive oil base. I'm not sure how much I... Like, the arugula gets... It doesn't get gross, but, like, the arugula is very good when it's fresh. And then, you know, by the time you're eating it 20 minutes later or reheating it the next day, the arugula loses some of its luster, I guess is what I'll say.
1: That makes sense. So the other... Uh, that that one also features Beecher's flagship white cheddar. The other seasonal, which is excellent, of course. The other seasonal tomato basil made with Roma tomatoes, roasted in olive oil, balsamic vinegar, and herbs. All right, let's get into 2006. So 2006 in Seattle sports. Last year we had these three amazing stories. This year, a darker time period. This the is biggest the biggest story. Not
0: quite the darkest time. Oh, you know, it gets much like darker. darkest time.
1: But uh, the biggest story comes off the court. When, on July 18th, the Sonics are sold to a group of investors from Oklahoma City. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, this story really goes back throughout all of 2006. We talked last week about the Seahawks playing in the Super Bowl. because it was part of the 2005 season, but of course it occurred in February 2006. The week of that game. Sonic's majority owner, Howard Schultz, held a pregame press conference complaining about the lack of support in the Washington State Legislature for the team's proposal to renovate Key Arena and threatened the possibility of a sale or move. We have no alternative, Schultz said. This is not a philanthropic venture. We're not trying to make money. We just want to stop losing it. The next week, Sports Illustrated wrote about the possibility of a move including reporting that Wally Walker at that point had met with representatives from the arena in San Jose, which I believe at the time was the Compacts. No, I don't know what what it was, but it's now the the HP arena in San Jose. It's the
0: Uh, no basketball arena.
1: It it certainly (laughs) certainly is. Uh, And that was where Seattle City Council member Nick Licata was quoted as saying about the Sonics potentially moving and, and the impact of that. On an economic basis near zero, on a cultural basis close to zero, we would still have two sports and plenty of cities our size don't have three. Thanks, Nikolkata.
0: This is – Nikolkata is one of the many bad guys in this formation, but, I mean, the way that Nikolkata is viewing this is kind – it's ridiculous, but we've already talked about The Greatest Villain in 2006.
1: Uh, so later that month, David Stern visited Olympia to lobby the legislature for arena funding, saying a substantial amount has been done for the baseball and football teams. I'm here personally to find out whether the same is being considered fairly for the NBA. If not, that's a decision we can accept, but then we'll have to act on it, act on it ourselves. The uh, session passed without progress. And I mean, the thing, the thing you have to remember about 2006, we've talked about this in the past, but like. Everyone just assumed the Mariners got saved at the 11th hour in 95. The Seahawks literally had moving vans at their headquarters in the Kirkland at that point. In either 95 or 96, around that same time. And everyone just assumed the exact same thing is going to happen here in Seattle. This will, you know, you have to threaten to move or sell the team. That's just part of the process. But then, all of a sudden, in July, it wasn't. <sighs> Do you have any memories of the day of the sale? Uh, yeah,
0: I remember sitting in <clears throat> uh, my childhood bedroom and reading about it. I went to ESPN.com on the front page, and it was like Sonic sold, and I was like, "Oh crap, what's this?" Everybody started panicking and then you coming back and being like it's fine it's not a big deal they want to keep the team in seattle and i was like oh well as i often do i just blindly went along with what you said i don't feel and like
1: i would have said that that it's fine
0: you were you were much less concerned than almost anybody else you were like this local news media is freaking out about nothing well, i th- i think I you mean, were let's put much this, more let's put this to in buy. context like okay
1: The way that it was being discussed by a lot of people was like, again, the moving trucks are here. The team is going to be in Oklahoma City by the end of the week, which was not Mm -hmm. true. But I mean, I've got I don't think I ever would have said it was fine. Let's discuss this in context. The team
0: moved to Oklahoma City after being sold to an ownership group from Oklahoma City. The person who executed the sale had disappeared by the time the sale had happened. It was it was an old fashioned grift. And, like, it, it happened right in front of us, and it happened in 2006. This—2006 2006 was the end of professional basketball in Seattle.
1: I, I mean, yes, it was the beginning of the end, but, you know, we did get a season of Kevin Durant. Like, I'm not going to, like, wipe that off the face of, you know, out, out of Seattle basketball history.
0: Okay, I may have a Kevin Durant Sonics bobblehead sitting right next to me, but I— almost would rather that that had never happened i'm
1: mean, going to get what you're saying but i i still would rather it happen uh so i've told the story before but i went to work that morning had no idea what, what was happening you know only a select group of employees dead I, I know david Locke has said that he was called in the night before to kind of like do a mock press conference or you know q and a to prepare for it uh, but Uh, I I was not called in after the Sonic softball game we had the night before, which was also a big part of the summer of 2006. Uh, (laughs) So the Stormer playing... They were
0: like, let let the boys rest. They had a big softball game.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, like our Vice President of Sales and Marketing, who would have been at that late night preparation, came to the softball game that night. (laughs) Who was your nemesis team? Like something steel? Ballard Sheet Metal? (laughs)
0: You know, they just got rocked by Ballard's sheet metal last night. Let's let them have the night off.
1: This was before that. That was later in the season. Because this was also, or no, I guess it might have been towards the end of the season. Another was,
0: terrible thing that happened in 2006.
1: It was after we played the doubleheader on the night of the 2006 draft. And I obviously did not participate in those games. But the players who did got heckled about the Mosete pick. They got hacked by Ballard Sheet Metal? Not Ballard Sheet Metal. Whoever they were playing. I gotta
0: say, whoever they were playing was right.
1: Ballard Sheet Metal, though. Like, we just kind of joked all season that they were going to be a rival. But then we actually did, like... There was some tension with Ballard Sheet Metal. (laughs) (laughs) They're a rough team, man. They're a sheet metal company. (laughs) We were out here in, like, our super professional jerseys because the uh, manager of the team shop was one of our players. And then we win one game all season. But guess who scored the game-winning <laughs> run in that game? This guy.
0: Wow. There you go.
1: One of my rare highlights that season. Anyways, much better than the time that uh, I got hit in the back with a softball while running from first to second, that they were trying <laughs> to throw me out at second, and collapsed to the ground is as <laughs> if, like, something terrible had happened to me. And I... This was this must have been our first game because I was still wearing shorts. I hadn't bought or hadn't gotten baseball pants, and uh, I skinned my knees so badly because I went like knee first into second base. That was painful for weeks afterwards. Really, really a rough. Anyways, that day I go in, don't oh, know anything. Stop
0: at nothing. Two thousand six.
1: I know. Uh, the Storm were playing their Kids Day game at noon against the Sacramento Monarchs. And so I'm planning to go up there, walk up there at like 10. And my boss calls me into his office probably around 9.45 or, or maybe right at 10 and gives me the news. And so I have to walk up to this game and plan to cover this game knowing that the Sonics have been sold to a group from Oklahoma City. The only other person in the arena at that point, well, I guess it was probably was PR people who knew, but uh, was Ann Donovan. And I remember she just looked like Hale is, a, you know, like a ghost, the, the late Ann Donovan, in her pregame media video, although she also deal with the fact that Lauren Jackson was injured and out for that game, and the Storm ended up losing. And uh, the news broke a little before halftime, and by the second half, there was, like, Oklahoma is not okay signs in the lower bowl already. And wow. Walked over from that game to the Furtado Center, the Storm, Sonics and Storm practice facility for the press conference uh and uh yeah that was thankful i didn't have to write anything about the press conference because i just was done emotionally at that point point. and the story i wrote about it when i wrote about this a few years ago on an anniversary was uh i went to go play basketball at the uh the church near our house and there was this guy there who i never had seen before never saw him again only time it was like i'm new in town and he's shooting around and uh, he goes, yeah, it's a shame I'm new, new here and I'm never going to get to see the Sonics play because they're going to move. And I did and not. You, were,
0: you were like, they'll have at least two more lame duck seasons. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I did not tell him that I worked for the Sonics. It was the only time, <laughs> only time I've ever obfuscated about where I worked.
0: You'll be like, just wait, buddy. They're going to trade a Hall of Famer for Jeff Green and you'll get to see one year of Kevin Durant. He'll be ripped away from you. <laughs>
1: Oh, boy.
0: Straight up. (laughs) Oh, man.
1: Well, in happier news, let's talk about the 2006 Seahawks. I don't know if they definitely are happier news. Sort of? Coming news? They had some good moments at the end we'll talk about. Uh, So from the 2005 team that reached the Super Bowl, they lost Steve Hutchinson to a poison pill offer sheet from the Minnesota Vikings, but of course responded in kind. (laughs) by issuing a similar poison bill offer sheet to restricted free agent Nate Burleson to bring him out.
0: There you go. I
1: don't know if he's 206's finest, but we're going to consider him that for now. Then, after opening the season with a 9-6 win over the Lions with no receiver, uh, with more than 52 yards receiving, the Seahawks trade a first-round pick to the New New England uh, Patriots for... Maybe for wide receiver Dion Branch, who had been holding out. And this was so exciting to us because we didn't oh, understand draft picks
0: yeah. yet. <laughs> yeah. Look, we, we weren't smart football fans. We probably were for 2006 standards. But, like,
1: he was the Super yeah, Bowl MVP. I thought so. Okay.
0: Trading for Dion Branch right then was like, all right, everything's okay again. We're going back to another Super Bowl. We've got Dion Branch.
1: I mean, the main thing I remember is that for at least two solid weeks— every time we saw each other we did not say hello we greeted each other with Dion branch
0: it's it's rare that that happens not not since percy harvin has have we done that Uh, (laughs) um but question for you about that i've never understood about the steve hutchinson uh poison pill offer sheet shoot the the deal with it was was he a restricted free agent yes so he was a restricted free agent, and the Vikings put in this clause. Can you still do this, by the way?
1: I think they have have outlawed this, which is, was not allowed at the time in the NFL or in the NBA. I mean,
0: which which is like whatever. If he plays so many games in the state of Washington or something, his contract goes up to something massive. I
1: think or that's what they did with Nate the Burleson. The rule, the the uh, provision in the Vikings' offer was that there was like some sort of enormous bonus if. He uh, wasn't the highest paid offensive lineman on the team.
0: Oh, so it's uh, basically I... like a, a Walt Jones factor.
1: Yes. Wikipedia says it would have guaranteed his entire salary if he was not the highest paid lineman on the, his own team. So there you go.
0: Which um, is really, like, when you think back on um, Steve Hutchinson's career, he's a whole-fame offensive lineman who was really young at the time. Would that yeah. have been that bad to have guaranteed his entire salary?
1: Yeah, it's fair. I would not. I mean, you would have risked injury, which is always possible. But
0: I mean, there should be guaranteed contracts in the NFL to begin with. So,
1: yes, I under
0: but okay, here's my question. That is not my question. Okay, my question is why did Steve Hutchinson want to play in Minnesota so badly that he was willing to agree to this? Because all that you're stopping is the Seahawks from matching the same offer sheet, right? He's not getting more money by going to Minnesota. This is and a great that, question. that's what has never made sense to me. Is it just like he was so desperate to get out of Seattle? Or like I mean, I know he was from the Midwest, it kind of makes sense. But he wasn't signing with the Packers, right? Like Yeah,
1: I don't know. I but And he's or was he's just, back like, on he good terms with to... the Seahawks organization, he now is working as a scout for the Seahawks
0: really yeah it's still steve hutchinson more than any of the seahawks well i guess actually quite a few players in this time period um <laughs> i have mixed feelings about a lot of players but more than any player who's not sean alexander <laughs> i still have mixed feelings about because it, it's like why why do that why after a Super Bowl year and Look, the reason that the Seahawks were worse after this and so slowly faded away probably had nothing to do with Steve Hutchinson.
1: I don't know that I would agree with like that. Their help. offensive line got substantially worse the next year.
0: So I I just don't get that piece of it, where it's like I understand it from the Vikings' perspective, but like for him, if the Seahawks match, that's a good thing,
1: right? It doesn't seem that way, but maybe the Vikings wouldn't have been willing to make him that offer if they thought the Seahawks might match it. God, so then what? So, like, I'm, I'm saying that, like, they wouldn't be willing to pay him as much money knowing that the Seahawks might be able to match it. So huh. that might, maybe I, I it was I, contingent on I think there are on faults that. on both sides
0: there, though. I, I think there is...
1: There was written, also like, the, okay, a let's... lot of talk at the time that Tim Ruskell, who was the Seahawks GM at, the point, at that point, did not believe in paying for a guard, basically.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well... I think both of those things, losing a player like Steve Hutchinson because of something like that, like, look, if it's something crazy, whatever, but just not guaranteeing, guaranteeing a salary, which I suppose in 2006 terms is unheard of. NFL is definitely moving a slight bit closer to that. But I, it just still, it does not make sense to me.
1: In 2005, Matt Hasselbeck was sacked on 5.1% of strap backs. In 2006, he was sacked on 8.4 percent of his dropbacks. Wow! And and was injured at one point that season, as we'll get to in a second. Here, the Seahawks <laughs> did start three and zero before getting blown out 37 to six at Chicago on Sunday Night Football. That was the first of six games. Do you remember that game at all? No, not really. Yeah, I don't. I don't either. First of six games missed by Sean Alexander, then Matt Haas was injured in a 31-13 home loss to Minnesota in Week 7 that I attended in a field suite. Uh, And most memorably remember Chester Taylor running away from me in a 95-yard touchdown in that gap. (laughs) Including that game, the Seahawks went two and three without Hasselbeck, who returned for the Monday Night Football snow game against Green Bay—a 34-24 win with Alexander rushing 40 times for 201 yards. There we go. In far and away his best game <clears throat> of the season.
0: Who started in his place? Was that Seneca Wallace. Yep. That that was like <laughs> the Seneca Wallace starting in the Seahawks going two and three during that time period was definitely a like be careful what you wish for type situation where we all loved Seneca Wallace and sort of wanted him to be the quarterback. And then when it happened, it wasn't as thrilling as it seemed like it was going to be.
1: I did not want him to be the quarterback. I was perfectly happy for him to uh, play wide receiver a few times a game. He actually was not really any worse than Hasselbeck though. Uh, Hasselbeck that season, a 54.1 QBR Seneca Wallace, a 49.3 QBR. Oh, and I had, uh, the third Pelton brother, Ben Baldwin, run the EPA splits, and the Seahawks were like had really terrible splits when they had just Hasselbeck or just Sean Alexander. <laughs> and then weirdly, if you took both of them off the field, they were that was actually their best EPA split. So
0: was when they had neither Sean Alexander nor Matt Hasselbeck.
1: Yeah, it was the Seneca Wallace Mo Morris combat. Wow, Mo Morris right. that season what? averaged more yards per carry than Sean Alexander, who dropped. <sighs> who dropped from, in his MVP season the previous year, 5.1 yards per carry to 3.6 Well, this was his last
0: season with the Seahawks, correct? Yeah, no, he had one
1: more. There was one oh. more.
0: Oh, boy.
1: <laughs> it went quick for Sean Alexander. Anyways, the Seahawks lost three in a row in December, including back-to-back home losses to San Francisco and then San Diego on Christmas Eve, before winning their season finale at Tampa Bay to clinch the NFC West at 9-7. and seven. Hosted the nine and seven Cowboys as the number four seed because the NFC was very bad in two thousand six. So this was the game we rewatched, thanks to uh, Third Pelton brother Zach Whitman. Who, by the way, I, did I mention this off the top? You, please go listen to the NFL draft preview we did with Zach before Thursday, before the draft. If you haven't already, uh, so the Seahawks trailed that game twenty to thirteen in the fourth quarter. And they failed on a fourth and one at the goal line, but then immediately afterwards got a safety and then drove for the go-ahead touchdown, a 37-yarder to Jeremy Stevens, his second in the game, go. to take a 21-20 lead with 424 left in the game. Cowboys marched down to the Seahawks, two with 119 left. And so here's a couple of things from that sequence that I'd forgotten because this is the one thing everyone remembers. First off, they got a first down on the field to the one with, to, on a completion to Jason Witten and replay somewhat questionably overturned that call <laughs> to make it a fourth and one and caused the Cowboys to go for the field goal there, a 19-yard field goal uh, attempt for Martin, Martin Gramatica. And then, as everyone remembers... Tony Romo dropped the snap. And then the key to the play, though, because it was fourth and one, like Romo easily could have ran for the first down. He could have easily ran for the touchdown. There was a lot of open field in front of him, but he gets chased down from behind by Jordan Bavado. Big, Big play, Bavineau. Babs.
0: Yeah. There we go. <laughs>
1: Uh, so the other thing I'd forgotten about is there's still 1.14 on the clock when the Seahawks take over. Like, the Cowboys have a chance to get the ball back. But Sean Alexander immediately ripped off a 20-yard run to give the Seahawks breathing room. And the Cowboys only got the ball back at midfield with two seconds left.
0: So if they hit that field goal, the first down was actually the worst case scenario for the Seahawks.
1: That, yes, the, yes it was.
0: That Jason Witten first down. I, I So what I remember from this was... UW versus USC.
1: It was, it was Arizona <laughs> College, uh, State. I looked uh, it up. Sorry,
0: Arizona State. Uh, Wasn't Nick Young playing? I swear I saw Nick Young that day for the first time.
1: Oh, you were such a Nick Young fan! Wow, that is such a random, a random 2007 memory. Can you go double check this? I mean, they hosted Arizona State on Saturday, January sixth. They <laughs> played at USC the previous weekend.
0: I guess it was later that we saw Nick Easy for the first time. Double Uh, OT
1: loss to uh, USC. Spencer Haas hit like a game-tying three at the end of regulation in that one.
0: That was the first 5-12 game with Spencer Haas, right? He hit that three. Yep. Yep, Yep, I remember that.
1: Uh, The Arizona State game, the Huskies started three freshmen in that game, and none of them were Quincy Pondexter.
0: Well, they all transferred, right? There's Phil whatever.
1: Phil Nelson, yes. Phil Nelson. Uh, they Adrian know something? It. Adrian A-O, Oliver. Adrian Oliver? Yeah, who ended up being like the nation's, like, one of the leading scorers in the country at San Jose State.
0: And I can't
1: remember the other one. Well, was Spencer Hoss? was the other one. Oh, That was, okay. that was the third.
0: Uh, I was, a, I, the idea that I would go to a regular season Husky basketball game instead of watching the Seahawks in a playoff game is so unheard
1: of I mean, in I
0: 2020.
1: D- I did it for the Beastquake.
0: It's I can't believe that you did that either. But like now I, I would do basically anything to not miss a Seahawks playoff game.
1: And you were there because you had the, like the student season tickets, but I was not there. Uh, I was watching this with Chris Smith. Third at Chris at Smith. Big
0: John Nizzle's house. I remember hearing the story uh, that when Romo botched the snap and then didn't get the first down, that Chris jumped into Big John Nizzle's arms and said, lift me.
1: This also was the year where we were playing football
0: at Tye High School. Was that 2006? Tackle it football was, at Tye High yeah. School? We were playing at Chinook Middle School.
1: Okay. In sometimes at Uh
0: We mostly only played at Chinook. Man, there's nothing more fun than playing tackle football. And it dangerous.
1: Was, oh, extremely dangerous at hindsight.
0: <laughs> but it was very fun. I, I feel like the playing tackle football is sort of, you know, people argue that the helmets make things worse. And like you definitely don't tackle as hard.
1: You it sounded like there was going to be a butt there, but there just never was. No,
0: that's it. It was okay. it was so much fun playing tackle football. Was great. Was. Every time period that I've had where I've consistently played a sport weekly or whatever is always the best time period.
1: What about when you've consistently coached a sport weekly?
0: That too. It's so this see... podcast content, I do want to say about Romo though, pretty heady play by Tony Romo.
1: Yeah, he didn't panic in that situation.
0: I mean, he immediately started running for that. Like, whatever, people drop snaps. Like, I feel like you can't really hold that against him. It's a thing that could, it's a random thing that could happen to almost anybody. He also probably but
1: should not have been in that role. He was the starting quarterback. Like, what a strange <laughs> it's
0: thing. That's crazy, too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> can you imagine Russell Wilson? <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I mean, he had, been, he had co- taken over for Drew Bledsoe season which had never happened to Drew Bledsoe before.
0: <laughs> Imagine the trick plays, though, if Russ was the holder for the Seahawks.
1: I missed the two-point conversion that they failed to convert after that Jeremy Stevens touchdown. People were saying it was like the Russell Wilson uh, uh, two-point conversion against the Packers in the NFC Championship game. Really? Although, obviously, it didn't work. They, they failed it. They, you know, had they converted it, the field goal would have only tied the game. Oh.
0: Uh. Just situationally, it was like the same. It wasn't well, no, like, no, no, like, like, like I think really I think he did. Yes,
1: it. I think no, I think that's um, what happened. It just didn't work um, this time because she, she was badass doing that and not Russ. Uh, which never should have worked, in fairness, when Russ did it. So the Seahawks then went on to play at Chicago, the number one seed that year, who went on to play in the Super Bowl and lose to the Colts, losing 27-24 to 24 in overtime. And I do not remember a single thing about this game.
0: Man, you don't. We were also at Big John Isil's house, and I distinctly remember it was one of those situations where, like, I think late in the second half, and I've, I've thought this a couple times, where you get that that inkling where you're like, "Oh shit, we're gonna win," you know? <laughs> um, you're like, you the Bears always want
1: to reject invincible. that feeling."
0: Oh yeah, and I do. I mean, I definitely had it in Super Bowl forty nine where it was a moment where I was like, "We're gonna be back to back champions. How am I gonna respond to this?" Uh, and I mean, I've said in wins also, <laughs> but it's when that thought creeps into your mind, you know that something bad is about to happen.
1: Never had it in Super Bowl 48. Uh, the Seahawks went up 24 21 on a Sean Alexander 13 yard TD with 4.57 left in the third quarter. Uh, the only score of the fourth quarter was a Robbie Gould 41 yard field goal with 4.24 left to tie the game. The Seahawks were near midfield, or across midfield, I should say. Lean regulation before a Tank Johnson sack on 3rd and 10 oh, ended their okay. drive. The Seahawks had the ball first in overtime, but picked up only a single first down. The Bears then got a 49-yard gold field goal to win it.
0: Now, see, what you're going to want to do is when you win the coin toss, you're going to want to let them
1: know that you're going to score. <laughs> no, 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 don't do that. All right, let's talk about UW men's bas- basketball, not the 2006-07 season. We're going to talk about the 2005-06 season, part of which we talked about last year when we inducted Brandon Roy into the podcast. <laughs> By favor. last year,
0: you mean last week. It has last only week. been eight <laughs> oh, No, it's not bad. <laughs> that. Oh, boy. People are protesting stay-at-home orders. It has been a full year. Oh boy. Uh,
1: the Huskies lost Nate Robinson to the NBA draft. Surprising early entrant who went in the first round. And then Will Conroy and Trey Simmons as seniors from the 2004-05 team that was the number one seed. And started out the season unranked but then began the season 11 and 0 including a 99-95 win that we talked about last week over number 6 Gonzaga to climb as high as number 7 in the rankings before losing in double overtime to Arizona on New Year's Eve in a game that Roy wow, followed that out of That was
0: New Year's Eve. That was yeah. I'm telling you that was the best college basketball game I've ever been to.
1: My best is you know beating undefeated Stanford in Northfork. It was just,
0: it was fun. Like the way that the game was going back and forth was fun. I get it.
1: Uh, Huskies went 13-5 and in Pac-10 play, finishing second behind UCLA. They swept the Bruins home and away, but were swept by Wazoo.
0: Tony to, Bennett's Wazoo, right?
1: I think that still might have been Dick Bennett. I, no, I guess that probably would have been Tony Bennett by that point.
0: I mean, this was the Bennett's period where tour. Wazoo was really good.
1: It was not quite the period where Wazoo was really good yet.
0: So this, this is before then, before they had dude with the long hair.
1: They had Derek
0: Lowe. Derek, I was going to say Derek Lowe.
1: I'm sure they would have had him by this point, but I, I think he might have been a freshman. i mm-hmm. have to look this up. Yeah, they went... They went... <laughs> uh, yeah, they went 11 and 17 that year. Oh, <laughs> so and 14 in Pac 12 play. It was Dick Bennett's last year. Half of their conference wins came against Utah. Wow, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Oh no. Uh, they, yeah, Derek Lowe was a sophomore on that team, as was Kyle Weaver. Aaron Baines was a freshman. Uh, not really anyone to note about. Note, uh, their leading scorer was sophomore Josh Akoyan. Who I feel like Katie once danced with at a party. Does that remember, I
0: remember think that that's correctly? true yes on the
1: Palouse. oh boy that is a, that is a memory
0: she was drinking a nabby light dancing with Josh coyne Oh, 2006
1: uh they started this the year yeah they they started with two wins against Arizona they they also beat Arizona state in that home stand and then one at UW. And then the rest of the year, they had two conference wins. or No, UW was their only conference win the rest of the year. That can't be, no, cool, cool. two conference wins. Yeah. So disappointing there. Anyways, the Huskies then, in the Pac-10 tournament, upset 84-73 by Oregon in the opening game after finishing conference play on an eight-game winning streak and land is the number five seed in the East Regional. The first weekend playing, I believe, in San Diego... Utah State 75-61, and then number 13, Illinois, 67-64, in one of the better NCAA, Husky NCAA tournament games that I don't think gets remembered at all.
0: I it's I sort of, I went to the zoo that day, is that right? Did we fight about this? Or or did Chris go to the zoo? There was, somebody went to the zoo, and then we got that Chinese food from the place on like 105th and then kind of comfortably beat Illinois. And that, that was the Illinois team who it was a year after they'd lost Darren Williams, right? Correct.
1: Uh, the year after they'd lost in the championship game to North Carolina. So they still had D Brown from that team, James Augustine. Yeah, they, they team. had the Not guy who looked the like same atmosphere.
0: <laughs> <laughs> James Augustine. But it was still a pretty deadly Illinois team. Yeah, uh, I
1: mean, they were 13th in the country. They were the four seed. I mean, it was a great matchup.
0: And that was, that was an excellent win for UW uh, and brought on the always fun matchup against UConn.
1: Yeah. Love to play UConn in the sweet 16 round. So this time it was number two in the country. UConn, the top seed in the East regional playing in DC. Uh, Jamal Williams had 27 points in that game. Is this wow. thing I did not know. Uh, all right, question, so the Huskies, Brandon Roy got his third foul on a double technical with Rudy Gay at the 13.55 mark of that game.
0: Still then, pissed about it <laughs> since last week. Still pissed.
1: It it actually, I mean, it probably was a double technical.
0: Just, the double technical shouldn't count as a personal foul. It yes, doesn't matter if it's a double technical. Correct. Uh,
1: then he got his fourth foul 16 seconds later. The Huskies were up six at the time. And I can't figure out exactly when he returned because they don't have substitutions in the college play-by-play, but (sighs) it looked like the Huskies' lead was down to two points at that point. Uh, So then the Huskies were up four when Mike Jensen, in the final 30 seconds, fouled Marcus Williams for a three-point play. In a situation where he would have been just better off uh, letting him go. That was my neighbor,
0: Mike Jensen, by the way.
1: (laughs) That is true. Huskies then made two free throws, so it's a three-point game. Can you remember who hit the tie-in three-pointer?
0: Uh Oh my God! Not. I want to say like Sheldon Brown.
1: That's Denim Brown is the, the guy you're thinking of, who was a Sonics draft pick, but it was not him. It was, it was Rashad Anderson who had two three-pointers in the final 30 seconds of the game, five of 10 from three, 19 points off the bench in that game. Uh, Ryan Appleby, this is what I didn't remember, just watching the highlights. Actually, Ryan Appleby got a pretty good look at the buzzer to win that game. But then the uh, the Huskies never led in overtime and lose that game to UConn 98-92. UConn goes on to be upset by number 11 seed George Mason in the regional final.
0: So we if we would have won this game, we would have played George Mason.
1: That's what I'm telling you.
0: With a chance to go to the Final Four. It's just... Uh, th- this was the last time for UW basketball that I really remember feeling like an actual contender for the, for a championship. It was this year. Huh. They, they had good teams after that, but it never felt in those moments like, yes, this team could win a national I championship. Mean, it's
1: just because just Brandon Roy was so good, he could have put you on his back. At that, I point. mean, he
0: basically did. UConn was one of the best teams in the country when they were playing them.
1: They were, yeah. They were a, a bit inconsistent, for sure. but
0: I mean, they have players still in the NBA. Yeah. There can't be that many players from that, that draft class who are still in the NBA. Uh,
1: there are definitely a few of them. I'm looking at the share's <sighs> leaders because I was curious if Brandon Roy was up there, which he, he isn't. Uh, Paul Millsap led the NCAA and win shares that year. Played wow, Louisiana got drafted Tech.
0: really low, right?
1: Yeah, oh, he was someone... Stats people loved Paul Millsap. I thought... I There was like some moment during the draft where I thought the Sonics had drafted him, but they didn't, and that was a disappointment. Instead, so they drafted Denim Brown. <laughs> he did not make the NBA. So speaking of the Sonics... They could have
0: drafted Paul Millsap, and they drafted Denim Brown.
1: I... Like, Millsap might have gone the pick before them. I mean, obviously they could have drafted yeah. Paul Millsap, what? given oh, where well, he went.
0: I guess it's good that they moved that. <laughs> now you're
1: in. Uh, Millsap went with pick 47. Uh, the Sonics picked Denim Brown with pick 40. A pick before James Augustine. <clears throat> cool. Cool, cool. But three picks after Bobby Jones. Did you just, like, throw some stuff? Uh, speaking of the Sonics they were unable to replicate their 2004-05 success Nate McMillan left for Portland on July 5th 2005 the day after the Sonics re-signed Ray <coughs> Allen they so, his... what day did the sale happen? July 18th but this is a year later we're, this is all in 2005 this is going into the 05-06 season ok
0: so he had, he had no idea about that
1: no yeah, okay. definitely. Definitely had nothing. What he knew is that the it looked like he was probably going to get fired during the season going into it. The Sonics front office did not have any faith in him going into that season where the Sonics won 52 games and around in the playoffs. So, And he was, he was like a really coveted free agent. So the Blazers made him, he might have been the highest paid coach or like the second highest paid coach in the NBA when he went to Portland. It was so weird. Like I remember I was at the preseason game that we played in Portland in oh five and Nate being there, it was bizarre. And then uh there was a press conference when he came back for the first time. Uh yeah. That was and that was like the Blazers were also in a real rough patch at that point. They hadn't yet they hadn't drafted Roy, obviously, or Lamarcus Aldridge yet. And they were still in the era where they were, like, super paranoid about the media coming out of the Jailblazers era. It was not a great time in Portland. But Nate turned things around.
0: Nate turned around, as he does. Uh, Who was running the Sonics at the time? Jerry Krause? Like, how (laughs) how do you not lock up Nate McMillan long term? He's played his entire career for the Sonics becomes the head coach of the Sonics, leads them to their best season since the mid-90s when he was a player on the team. Like, how do you let Nick McMillan go in that moment?
1: I mean, it would be interesting to go back and ask people now because I don't remember what the reporting was at the time. I mean, they obviously offered him a contract. They didn't want him to leave. I didn't know if they were going to pay him as much as the Blazers were. They, they certainly did not spend as much as the Blazers did at that in that point in franchise, the franchise's history. No,
0: they would never. They were hemorrhaging. But it, it was not. I mean, they were. Nobody will ever make money owning a professional basketball team.
1: It was not like they were like Phil Jackson. You, you go 82-0 and, and you're not coming back. It was not like that. <laughs> so the Sonics promoted assistant coach Bob Weiss to replace him. Retained most of the 24-0-5 core, despite virtually all of the key players being free agents, losing Antonio Daniels and Jerome James, who, as we mentioned, got the bag from the Knicks. But it wasn't the same, particularly on the defensive end of the court. The Sonics started the season one and four and were thirteen and seventeen when Weiss was fired on January third and replaced by Bob Hill.
0: Really, when you when you factor in <clears throat> that they were because they still had to pay him the contract, right, Bob Weiss? Yeah. Just pay Nate McMillan. Instead of having a coach that you're paying a little bit less, when you add Bob Hill plus Bob Weiss's contracts together, they probably were equaling Nate McMillan's contract, right?
1: No, probably not. Really? I would I would bet against that. I mean we never really find out about coaches' contracts, but I would I would bet heavily against it, Oh, that, this is not
0: like publicly available information. No. Oh, there's no basketball reference with coach coach contracts.
1: And wouldn't it be great if there was? But why? I mean, they did not have. These are not guys that had like a lot of leverage, like Nate did. So they dropped as low as 15 and 24 for before that double overtime win at Phoenix. As we've talked about many, many, many times on this podcast, the same it's day. The only thing we talk about is the yeah, <laughs> championship game, the fabulous
0: 2005 <laughs> victory at Phoenix. cast January
1: 2020, <laughs> January 22nd, 2006. That's where it just that life peaked. Then at the on Valentine's Day, the Sonics traded Vladimir Radmanovic for Chris Wilcox, uh, for, uh, further breaking up the core. And then a couple weeks later at the trade deadline. Traded away Reggie Evans, Flip Murray, and Vitali Patopanko, landing Earl Watson in a four-team deal. Watson solidified a defense that was the worst in NBA history to that this point. This was
0: re-landing Earl Watson, right?
1: Yes, bringing him back. He has so, been drafted by the Sonics in the cigarette And he, he played, played one year.
0: One before year Levy. before signing with Memphis.
1: Yeah, before leaving his wow. restricted free agent. Uh, so uh, most people, like everyone knew the Sonics' defense was bad, but no one actually knew how bad it was until, and I, I looked this up, on April first, John Hollinger, my predecessor at ESPN, published a column noting that relative to league average they had the worst defense in NBA history. And I remember this like being so shocking to people that the PI's beat reporter at the time, Gary Washburn, is now at the Boston Globe, like they asked him to go like interview every player and ask them about being the worst defense of all time.
0: <laughs> wow. So th- I like that you and John Hollinger, as uh, sort of one after another at ESPN, were on the two different sides of that Grizzly Sonic Strait.
1: I mean, I mean, he was like 12 years from. <laughs> And Watson wasn't on the Grizzlies at that point. Was
0: he was one whole grit and grind away from working with the Grizzlies. A lot of grit,
1: a lot of grit, a lot of grind. Uh, Watson at that point was playing for the Nuggets, who just uh, had too many point I guards. See. They had Earl Boykins and Andre Miller, so they had they had too many point guards named Earl. Uh, the Sonics went 14-13 and 13 the rest of the way after adding Earl Watson, but still finished nine games out of a playoff spot. The highlight of the season... In the season's final game, Ray Allen set the NBA single-season record with 269 three-pointers, beating Dennis Scott's record of 267, and no one would ever make that many three-pointers again. <laughs> and actually, it stood seven seasons before Steph hit 272 in 2012-13, and so I was also there to see Steph break the record. So I saw two back-to-back record-setting three-point single-season uh, marks.
0: Was that in Portland that he said it?
1: Or yeah, just... their season, season finales in Portland. Yeah. Ah. UW football made now, progress. Now
0: most centers and power forwards hit 272 threes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, really, it's still pretty high
0: up there. The <laughs> Michael two, Kidd-Gilchrist hit 275 oh, last year.
1: Look, <laughs> <Fuck>. Michael Kidd-Gilchrist <laughs> hits 275 threes. Uh,
0: so th- that Sonic season, I mean... It, we talked about this being the, basically the end of professional basketball in Seattle. And obviously, we'll talk about Durant when he played here. But, like, not re upping Nate, where you have to assume you're getting some sort of hometown
1: discount of some kind. You know, right. like. I think they probably were at the opposite position at that point.
0: Because of what? Because Nate just didn't feel confident in the front office?
1: Yeah. And he didn't feel like they had his back. It is. <laughs> Which I don't think they were wrong to like be down on Nate McMillan. I was pretty down on Nate McMillan as a coach going into the 4 5 season. Wow! Like, did the Sonic's hadn't been that good?
0: How many years was he the coach? How much talent did he have?
1: Uh, he had been three and a half years on the job going into that point. I mean, like, if he wasn't Mister Sonic, he would have been fired in the summer of two thousand four. He anyway, still had an excellent
0: fine. season. I'm just saying, this, this shines more on the front office than it does on Nate And like, sure, I don't blame you, Nate for leaving. You look at it and you're like, wow, Nate McMillan was fucking prescient when he did this. You're like, he went to Portland right before Portland was going to get a lot better and before the Sonics were going to move. It was like, they, Nate comes out the winner in the entire situation, but when that season started, everything just felt flat. It was just yeah. like, something is wrong. Right? Especially the hiring of Bob Weiss as the coach where you're just like, I mean, sure, Bob Weiss is fine, right? But, like, this man's an assistant coach. He's not, there's nothing exciting about Bob Weiss. You are like, he'd been the coach of the Hawks in the early 90s or whatever. Like, there was just, there was nothing new or interesting about it at all. The team looked mostly the same, but just didn't quite feel right. I wonder in hindsight, we both kind of liked Chris Wilcox and Vlade, but, like, the team wasn't that different. It was just something felt wrong.
1: I mean, part of it was they probably got like they overachieved in 0-4-0-5. Like they weren't that good in O three O four. They had mostly the same players then too. Did they uh, overachieve
0: I mean, statistically in O four O five though?
1: Not really. Like in terms of point differential, I think a little bit. But it wasn't like they were like a forty one win team. Or, I don't. I don't think were...
0: Nate was coaching the worst defense of all time.
1: No, that was part of it. I mean, he Nate has shown a tremendous knack for cobbling together okay defenses from bad talent,
0: and that's maybe all you needed if you have a good offense.
1: But like the one thing, the thing to remember is like Ray was super excited that Bob Weiss would play the same Nate. Okay, like Ray and Nate did not necessarily see eye to eye, uh, but I think they eventually come came to a, much like the front office probably came to appreciate Nate in his absence. Because it turned out they needed someone getting on them all the time. <laughs> because then they might actually play a little defense. Just a little. <clears throat> this this was a bad season though. It's just I don't know, there was
0: something about two thousand six where in a lot of ways it was like uh, we we had it so good in two thousand five and in a lot of different sports scenarios, and two thousand six was definitely the hangover year from that.
1: That's a good way to put it. It was like you after drinking a lot of cloudburst beer. <laughs> UW football made progress in 2006. They started the season four and one with their lone loss coming at number 15, Oklahoma. Beat both San Jose State and Fresno State by single score margins, but then beat UCLA and won at Arizona's start Pac-10 play. Uh, This is like, it's funny. Obviously, I had gone to UW. I did not have season tickets when I went to UW, which is just mind-boggling in hindsight. But like, I preferred watching the games on TV because that's how I'd always done it as a kid. Well, you're, this gonna, was,
0: you're gonna love this next year. Wow,
1: well, this no two years later. <laughs> next year was okay. No, no,
0: no, I meant this next this upcoming football season. Oh watching, oh, watching all the
1: games on TV. Wow, i <laughs> will be happy if we just have games to watch on TV. Uh, this was the first year we started really going to games. You, you, you and you Katie started had really going, going games. to games. So this was
0: my second year. And look, I saw back-to-back horrible Oregon State losses.
1: Yeah, so the <laughs> it, previous year was the driving rain. This year, the weather wasn't so bad. Well, we got to talk about that era. Was, uh, well, the, the UCLA game was really fun. There was like I feel like there was a blocked field goal. At, that was Katie was that drunk
0: room. under the seats in that UCLA yeah, game. That ultimate
1: fun. Yes,
0: <laughs> where it was like the fourth quarter. And Katie was like, she. I think it was after that block, Katie, Katie was like, what are we cheering for? <laughs> she got up from under the seats. It was like deep into the game that Katie was still incoherently drunk. I think it might have been because of that Sonic's tailgate. Uh,
1: I have no comment on this issue. Was
0: that 2006? Look, the team doesn't exist anymore. You're fine. <laughs>
1: I I can't remember the exact timetable, whether it was 2006 or 2007, but that that would make sense, because we weren't, like, tailgating on our own, necessarily, at that point. The Arizona game also was very bizarre, because in 2006, they would play a road game, and it just wouldn't be on TV, (laughs) so... We went to heck Ed to watch the game oh, off the Arizona video yeah. board broadcast of the game. It's like every third, third down, bear, third down, bear, down, bear yeah. down. They'd be playing that graphic on the screen, but they but did not like bear Friday down night, sufficiently. Right? Wasn't it? Mm, I think it was or on was Saturday. It Saturday
0: night.
1: I think it was on a Saturday. They did not bear down sufficiently in that one, as the Huskies got the twenty-one to ten victory to go to four and one, and we're feeling pretty excited. Because like this team has been bad for a while now, and didn't they? They got up
0: bad. to being ranked number twenty-five in the country. Is that right?
1: No, they were never ranked.
0: Okay, like, maybe that was a different time. Maybe that was during Coach Sark's first year. This is after they beat USC.
1: Okay, they, and then they had lost the next week. Yeah, the next week they play USC and lose 20 Like they're competitive against a USC team ranked third in the country. Although this was not one of Pete's best USC teams, John David Booty started that one at quarter. So he
0: had them ranked number three in the
1: country. I mean, obviously they were like all five star guys. These just weren't like historically weren't good. Also a brutal
0: loss at Oregon state or something.
1: Probably. Uh, and then the following week at four and two Huskies come home to play at Oregon state. And that's where Isaiah Stanback suffers a career ending at least college. Liz Frank injury.
0: <sighs> Oregon so that State.
1: That was bad. Uh, Standback had been pretty good that season, and then Carl Benell came in and was not good as it turned
0: Loved Isaiah Standback.
1: Oh, Isaiah Stanbeck, one of our all time favorite uh, UW QBs.
0: And then what about the Cal game that year,
1: also? Well, So let's take on Carl Bonnell, who completed 44% of his passes for 5.6 yards per attempt, 11 interceptions in 164 attempts. Wow, it was not good. That so the Huskies then go on after that USC game, including that they lose their next six conference games to drop to four and seven before beating Wazoo in the Apple Cup, thirty five thirty two. But still had did have some competitive moments in there, including as you mentioned that Cal game which they tie on the final play a 40-yard, essentially Hail Mary, from Carl Bonnell to Marlon Wood. to force Marlon Wood, to... I was going to
0: try to guess who that was. I remember freaking out. I think we were at your house watching that game when Katie was living there and freaking out at that Hail Mary.
1: That is correct. In hindsight, the Huskies should have gone for two there. should have tried to win it in regulation. Carl through threw five interceptions in that game. Wow. <laughs> Uh, but the star of that game was a young man named Marshawn Lynch, who had 21 carries for 150 yards and two touchdowns, four catches for 53 yards, scored wow. a 22-yard touchdown in overtime to win it, and then got on the cart and drove around.
0: It was the greatest Seattle moment in that year. <laughs> it <really was. laughs> it's the best thing to happen in Seattle sports in all of 2006.
1: I mean, it's kind cutting of the Tony Romo fight, but... Maybe that, that was the high point, but that was... Uh, oh, and by the way, the low point for the Huskies also involved a future Seahawk, A loss to 0-9 Stanford. I mentioned last week I thought you could pinpoint the actual low point in Seattle sports because I was thinking this game happened in 2008. It was actually this season. So Stanford comes in again 0-9, has not won a game.
0: This is a Beats pre-Harbaugh Stanford, right?
1: Yes. Yes. Beats the Huskies getting a 74-yard touchdown from some receiver named Richard Sherman. <laughs> Pretty
0: wild. God, I wish we could just, like, go back to that moment for one second. No, don't go Sherman back was.
1: to go but, I mean, it was also But just for a second, like, cold. how
0: much fun would that be?
1: They beat the Huskies 20-3. to 3. Yeah, I mean, if you knew what Richard Sherman, who Richard Sherman was going to be, what he was going to do, it would be wild.
0: Or, like, we were probably pissed off. I don't even remember Marshall Lynch really driving on the cart, except for the highlights now where I think it's awesome every time. But, I, mean, like, I remember
1: just... it because I didn't get that bubble head at the Cal UW game and it haunts <laughs> me to this day.
0: It's really the worst thing that you've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, at the time we probably would have been pretty pissed about that, Marshall Lynch driving around in the car. And now I'm just like... Uh,
1: I mean, we were happy just to be there.
0: It's just kind of amazing how differently you can think about things over time and how much context matters.
1: So the 5-7 and seven record was still the Huskies' best record during the period between 2004 and 2009 tied wow. their best record. I mean, the one thing, I think Tyrone Willingham gets a little bit of an unfair rap in that... That team was as good as some of the Sark teams that went to bowl games. It's oh, just yeah. that they were massively over-scheduled at that point. And the Pac-10 was really good back then. So their strength of schedule was incredibly high.
0: Yeah, in the modern Pac-10, they'd be like second place.
1: And then Stan got hurt. So like yeah. that was actually a good team. Now, the, what happened after that with Tyrone Wynham, we'll get into in future years. 2006 saw the Mariners progress towards respectability that went 78-84 and 84, despite a step back from Felix Hernandez who went 12-14 and 14 with a 4.52 ERA in his first full season with the Mariners. Uh, a notable moment from that year, Jamie Moyer traded to Philadelphia in August at age 43, a decade after being traded to the Mariners. <laughs> he then went on to pitch an additional four seasons for the Phillies plus part of 2012 for the Colorado wow.
0: Rockies. I definitely had him in fantasy baseball at some point, like in in his mid-40s. I've started him.
1: All right, wrapping up Seattle sports, the Storm took a step backwards in 2006 due to Lauren Jackson's injuries. She played 30 of 34 games, but was limited to a then career-low 28.4 minutes per game. The Storm dropped to 18-16 and 16 and lost in three games to the L.A. Sparks in the opening round of the playoffs. Should we talk about music? Absolutely. Should we talk about crazy? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, I have like such a specific memory. So, 2006, uh, we mentioned last year that that like academic year 0506, you lived with the famous cousin Katie, and I have like such a specific memory of driving to that house on a Friday afternoon when it's sunny outside during the summer, listening to like Cube was probably playing crazy every other song at that point I would imagine on Cube it,
0: was, mean, being, it, was, it was being played on every station that's the thing about Crazy is it wasn't it oh, wasn't yeah, it was like a crossover a, it, hit. it wasn't Cube music it was Kiss 106 music also right
1: they were probably playing on the end just because
0: absolutely they were I think it probably was being I mean, that song was so big that it was all over the place and like 2006 was... Did I mention this before? Last week? I feel like this was the first year that I remember there being a song this summer.
1: Well, you mentioned it in 2005.
0: About Feel Good Inc.
1: But and, 2006 was much more clear, much more definitive. And I also associate that with that summer, my other big memory is, it's sports, but not Seattle sports, Italy winning the World Cup. Oh, fuck! You forgot about that?
0: I do have to say, Man! Because we're talking about Seattle sports, which were awful in 2006. But let's talk about the summer of 2006 in a second.
1: Okay. What, what should we talk about now? <laughs> Nothing. No, I, oh, I'm we're playing just going to pause. <laughs> well, okay, I wanted to. Okay, so there was a crazy moment. Uh-huh. There was also, and this was not necessarily as strong, but it lo- longer lasting in some ways, the girl talk moment.
0: The, the girl talk moment was one of the most thrilling things that happened on the internet. Like it it was, I had the CD of Night Ripper, which is insane that they actually made this CD from illegal art records where it was like all of these sounds. It was so 2006 too, where you're just like, girl talk is taking classic rock and pop music and indie rock and hip hop and it's all in one and it was like, like all the things I like. Mashups were so exciting. Like if I heard a mashup right now, I would bash my computer. You know what I mean? Where <laughs> it's like I I want to hear that less than I want to hear any music on earth. But in two thousand six, it was the most exciting, coolest shit we had ever heard.
1: It was futuristic,
0: right? And when we'd heard. Biggie mashed up with tiny dancer with the original blow up, like the world trade line. That was like the coolest thing that we'd ever heard in our entire lives. Right? Like that moment, if you could, if you could sum down all of girl talk, right? Cause a lot of, there's so much going on. It just distills down to finding basically maybe the greatest rap verse of all time in juicy. And then putting it against, like a classic rock song, which was also huge from fucking almost famous right before then, and having these two things together, right and it was the then. most exciting
1: thing. What almost famous came out in two thousand, didn't it?
0: But it was like a song that was more in the zeitgeist because of almost famous. That's how I knew Tiny Dancer, right? Okay. Like it, it was a song that had had a, a second, uh, had a second life because of that, and those two things happening at the same time. Like I didn't, I don't remember caring about Juicy before then. And after that, I was like, oh, like, I went back and listened to Ready to Die because of Girl Talk. It was like Girl Talk was changing hip-hop that had come before. We were discovering things because of it. And I'm like, oh, what's this sample? What's that sample? Right? Like, it it was so exciting.
1: Hmm. That's just, I think a lot of the, the appeal of Girl Talk and Night Ripper specifically is, like, everything was so familiar,
0: It's both. It's the familiar matched up with maybe the unfamiliar, and you're like these little bits where you're like, "Oh, where's that from?" Right.
1: There was another moment in two thousand six. This this was
0: iPod music. Yes. This this is music that sounds good on an iPod.
1: The other moment in two thousand six was the hyphy moment. (laughs) Uh huh. Did
0: that? I mean, Marshawn Lynch playing at Cal.
1: I that's what I was gonna say. It's like what a great time for the East Bay. Uh, tell me when to go from E-40. I ain't got dreads, but I'm thinking about growing some. I mean, what a moment. I also, for some reason, weirdly connect this to the girls next door, because there was w- at one point where they were ghost riding the whip on that show. I don't know why that connection is enough <laughs> but it is. The other moment uh, that we had in 2006... Yes, Justin Timberlake with Future Sex Love Sounds.
0: Uh, yeah, that kid from NSYNC really made good.
1: <laughs> I mean, so many hits off that album. He, so he had
0: hits. Cry Me a River before then, but it was like when Future Sex Love Sounds happened, it was like, oh, this person's a bona fide like, major pop artist. He, is, he he reached the pantheon. For that moment, I don't know if it's necessarily lasted, but like we were looking at Justin Timberlake as a, like, Michael Jackson, Prince-level pop artist, right? For sure, yeah. It's like, th- this is thrilling. So 2006, also, for me, was the year that I got back into, because I, I was indie rap basically all of the 2000s until 2006. And we were, again, at Katie's house, at your current House in Boulevard Park, watching the BT Awards. <laughs> and I heard for the first time ever... It probably been out for way too long. What You Know by T.I. And I was just like, oh, shit. <laughs> I was like, what's going on over here? <laughs> I was like, there is thrilling music happening. And it was like, what you know about that. That changed everything. And that whole The King album by T.I. I was like, I got to burn the CD from some place or whatever. And the first second of it, I was like, oh, T.I. is fucking incredible uh and it was definitely like i think since then i had like a 10-year moment of being back interested in like more mainstream rap music because of ti really wow ti or like like i I was more interested in like rap music and not like indie rap
1: Mm -hmm. i get it
0: uh it was also i mean we have Maybe aside from I don't know aside from a few things, but Hell Off No Fury by Clips, which was like, you know, it was it was pitchfork rap music, but it wasn't indie rap in basically any way, right? Like Hell Off No Fury, the the level that Pusha T and Malice were at for that album, and plus Pharrell, right? Like th- all of those coming together, it, it was like it came out of fucking nowhere, right? I never heard Clips before Hell Off No Fury. And then it was like, boom, it slapped you in the face. It was like, here's your here's your blog music, blog boys.
1: <laughs> sure. Uh,
0: 2006, though, in general, I feel like I, there were things that were exciting at the time but didn't necessarily last forever, whereas, like, yes, like, we liked Gnarles Barkley or whatever, like, things that were really thrilling, but now when I look back at them, I'm like, they're hell of no fury aside. Like, doesn't quite hold up, uh, but one that does hold up. Songs for Christmas by Sufjan Stevens.
1: I mean, that's definitely the most lasting impact of any album released in 2006, without question. I will continue to listen to that until Sufjan puts out a new non-electronic Christmas like the volume albums. two, really,
0: it didn't. It didn't hold up in the same way. Like Sufyan's trying stuff out. We just wanted more traditional Christmas music. And the moment where he was or recording...
1: original, but sounds traditional. Yes, or at least like like not not you know I don't know. Just not age electronic. of
0: odds, Kanye or Kanye Sufyan is not. <laughs> I would be curious about the age of odds. <laughs> age of, age of odds Sufyan it is not necessarily perfect for christmas music it's perfect for age of odds but like christmas music that sounds like it not sure about illinois or is perfect for christmas music and Correct. when he, when he was recording like the volume five on songs for christmas holds up like these these to to us to basically nobody else are <laughs> these are like these are Christmas classics, right? These are canon. These are being I played this, on Warm 106.9 starting the day after Thanksgiving.
1: I think this got taken out of the Ape Reveyard metrics page, my, the reference to the Sufjan Stevens Wait, really? Christmas. Yeah.
0: Who would have done that?
1: I, well, someone who doesn't know me, clearly.
0: C-H-R-I-S-T-M-A-S. <laughs> uh, the year that gave us maybe the worst Jay-Z album in Kingdom Come uh, debatable aside from that one that got well, downloaded onto our T-Mobile phones.
1: Look, first off, he said he was going to come back like Jordan wearing the four or five. The thing is Jordan lost wearing the four or five.
0: <laughs> he eventually would come back like Jordan wearing the two, or three. Yeah.
1: But that's, it took a little while, just it, like with Jordan. It just
0: took a little while. Uh, and then a few others that I want to call out, uh, the life pursuit by Dylan and Sebastian, I was at my all time Bell and Sebastian High. Uh, they played at the Moore Theater, I want to say, in early 2006, uh, with New Pornographers opening and I'm like meeting up with our Aunt Nuggle after because that's the kind of music that I was listening to at the time. Uh, Tail <laughs> by Ghostface Killa. Kilo is a thousand grams. It's easy to remember. It's like I always know how many grams a kilo is because of that song. Uh, Burial, definitely like, along with Girl Talk inventing internet music like without burial there's no like the idea of like when the weekend started it nobody knew who it was right it was like a secret mm-hmm. and without burial I feel like that doesn't happen hmm. and, and internet news music where you're, it's like shrouded in mystery even to this day for him uh, dog problems by the four format <clears throat> do you know that band is no the pre-fun group lead singer oh. fun from phoenix oh, arizona gosh. uh stand very hard for dog problems went to go see them at new Mo's before new Mo's had air conditioning and it was like a 98 degree day it was the hottest place that i've ever been in my entire life um, aside from seeing girl talk the next summer at Capitol block party which we'll talk about in 2007 blood mountain by mastodon boys and girls in america the hold steady sequel which not quite separation sunday but it was all right uh and then the Seminole J. album. who unfortunately died too young blood visions. Uh, And also in 2006, you might not have known this. Dr. Drake teased the detox forever. And it actually came out in 2006. And then album was called doctor's advocate by the game. I'm telling you, this was when Mm. I got into mainstream rap music. I distinctly remember this is the first time that I was living in Redmond, Washington drinking a 40, because I was routinely drinking 40s in 2006, uh, drinking a 40 and listening to Doctor's Advocate, and it was just like, hell yeah. I was like, this was, in that moment, it felt like we were listening to the Chronic for the first time, hearing that. Wow. I was like, the game, you know, like, documentary was good, or whatever, Doctor's Advocate game put out his best version of a classic Doctor Dre, like Compton
1: record. I mean, yeah.
0: Does this not? It doesn't mean anything to you?
1: Not that much to me.
0: <sighs> R.I.P. Okay, so I also have to mention the summer of 2006, which, otherwise known as for Italians, the best summer ever um, since Augustus uh, ro- roamed the streets. <clears throat> <laughs> we had that summer. The first ever time in my entire life that I paid attention to soccer. You paid it a little bit more attention than me.
1: I mean, I had paid like a tiny bit of attention in the night, Italy in the ninety four World Cup. Had watched, woke up early to watch Italy lose to France in the quarterfinals. I think in the ninety eight World Cup on Univision because it was uh-huh. not broadcast live in English. That was like, the one Baggio
0: to PK. Uh,
1: well. I think Baji missed the PK, and well, maybe both. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Italy, lost, Italy lost both of those on PKs. God. Suffice it to say. Didn't, <laughs> they played a lot of PKs. I mean, I didn't pay attention to... Like the PKs came back. Yeah. 2002, I didn't really pay any attention just because those games were on in the middle of the night. But 2006, I was ready.
0: 2006, I feel like a lot of things came together for soccer. In the U.S., like the timing was perfect of those games. It was in Germany. Italy had an excellent squad. They they were a fun team too. Like this was the most fun Italian soccer team we've ever followed. Obviously, they they, won the World they
1: Cup. played the U.S.
0: They played the and I think they drew with the U.S. in the group stage, Great. right? Yeah. So, rallying around that team, like that those weeks from, I, I want to say like mid to late June, like the right when UW ended school, I just finished my first year at UW. I had no job that summer. I literally was doing fuck all. I was going to go see the format at new Like that was what I was doing. I was listening to indie rock music and getting hyped on TI and watching Italy play soccer and then drinking some forties and listen to the game. Like I have never had a better summer in my entire life. <laughs>
1: There, there was, was you, the only point for the U S in that group stage.
0: Great. Uh, <laughs> the, the blue scholars on Bianchi have the line about tilting Carlo Rossi back in the summer of 2000. And it's always 2006 for me in the summer of 2006. We were drinking a lot of Carlo Rossi, mm-hmm. right? Cause we were proud to be Italian. And for some reason that translated drinking Carlo Rossi, uh, the, <laughs> I met Mrs. Fantasy Genius in 2006, and we started dating that summer. It was just like, I remember it being a hot summer. We were, like, hanging out. We ran in sprinklers one night. We were having cranium parties. Yeah,
1: remember cranium the cranium parties. parties? Of course I remember the cranium parties.
0: 2006 was the perfect summer, and that Italian soccer team beating Germany on July... Was it on the 4th of July? Yes. Uh, beating Germany on the 4th of July. The the, Which... <laughs> knew nothing about soccer at the time, but now looking back at it, I'm like, wow, they beat the team that was hosting the World Cup. <laughs> That's pretty exciting. I mean, it, was,
1: it was a young German team at that point. That was the Jürgen Klinsmann team, wasn't it?
0: Jürgen. Uh, beating Germany on the 4th of July, then going on and playing in the final again against France, the hated France. And we have one of the most memorable moments of World Cup history, right? With yeah. Z- Zidane headbutting Marco Materazzi. And it was like, we were at somebody's apartment. we're at Nick's apartment or somebody's apartment watching that match with a bunch of people i swear to god every single one of them was cheering for france
1: which oh, i yeah. don't even
0: don't even know how that came to be but i remember waking up early that morning it was sunny outside it was hot it was exciting and then you go to penalty kicks after this crazy moment had happened and it's like look italy lost a defender and france lost cedon you know so we are feeling pretty good going into it also like Buffon's not losing this World Cup and Gigi Buffon winning the World Cup on penalty kicks for Italy it was the first real soccer moment that I remember paying attention to and still the best soccer moment that I've ha- ever had
1: Yeah, it'd be hard to be. <sighs>
0: Crazy was playing on the radio, we were tilting Carlo Rossi back it was incredible I think we were at Billy Lecomp's apartment
1: that could be it was someplace I had never been before and never went again
0: <laughs> He was French <laughs> or a French descent, right? So like, oh man, God, that was a good summer. Despite all the sports that, that were not that good. This was also the year that I traveled to Oregon, right? For that road game at Uh,
1: Yeah. Yeah, that would have been because it was... It was the next fall, and it was when the I stayed home because the Sonics had the finale of the 40th anniversary tour with the majority of the players from the 40th anniversary team. So there was some event we had in the rain, I think in Beacon Hill, maybe? It poured rain.
0: And it was the the first and only time. You've never really been to Eugene. The first and only time I've ever been to Eugene, and I don't really plan on going back. Look, the Huskies would have to be pretty heavy favorites for me to return to Eugene uh and it was a
1: 34 14 loss for the huskies
0: you you looked pretty good early on and then it just it all collapsed uh and the drive back cuz we weren't staying there and it's not a quick drive right it's like oh. take the portland drive and add another 2 hours on or something and that drive back was just terrible in the pouring rain just feeling crushed about losing to oregon so badly not even realizing how many more losses to oregon were to come
1: no,
0: uh, but that it was definitely like 2006 was the hangover of 2005. The fall of 2006, going back to school, <laughs> was the hangover of 2000 and, of the summer of 2006. And we also had this was the year that Boise State, Chris Peterson. I think it was technically 2007, but that Fiesta Bowl happened, and I remember this was that year that Boise State was so good as well. Jared Zabransky,
1: Statue of Liberty play because Chris Peterson. He loves trick plays.
0: Loves trick plays. This was like the year that all the people we would eventually come to love had great moments for other teams.
1: I mean, Pete Carroll didn't, as we talked about. The team went, although they went 11-2 and, and finished fourth, that was still a relative down year for uh, USC to just win the Rose Bowl over Michigan. And they did, in fact, lose at Oregon State 33-31. So there you go.
0: Uh, extremely quickly, 2006 Bumbershoot lineup. Uh, This was the year that Kanye West played Bumbershoot. He'd played Sasquatch the previous year. Blue Scholars opening for Kanye West. It was Kanye, Tribe Called Quest. So I think they had two hip-hop nights, which was pretty exciting. Uh, So one night was Blue Scholars going into Kanye, and this was when Blue Scholars, like, announced that they were doing Mass Line, right, before they'd signed with Ruckus. It was, like, I don't think I've ever been as hyped on... (laughs) on a bummer shoot show i didn't i don't think i had press access i think the first year i had press access was the next year i think i just bought tickets this year but was like one of the most exciting moments and then they also had atmosphere into tribe as another headliner like that was a very exciting year for what i was into really beyond there it's it's like i remember going with jan to see the steve miller band blondie spoon new pornographers it was, like, a lot of stuff that I was very into in 2006.
1: There was someone named
0: Macklemore who played there? Yeah. We, we didn't mention this, but I do remember in early 2006, I think for Christmas 2005, Jan was just like, buy whatever CDs you want, and I'll give, I'll give those to you as a Christmas present. And I got The Language of My World by Macklemore. Uh, after hearing it was early December two thousand and five that I'd heard it on KxP, heard white privilege, and I was just like, <laughs> "What is this?" Um, and then I got that was like very got very into local hip hop two thousand and six two
1: thousand and six on TV saw the debut of Thirty Rock, which you'll recall was a poor man's studio... Studio
0: 60 on the Sunset Strip? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. knockoff.
1: But proved, of course, much more lasting. And it was great to just welcome Tracy Morgan back into our lives in an even bigger way eventually, I think, probably than SNL.
0: Yeah, it was before we really knew who Tina Fey was.
1: No, we knew who Tina Fey was. She had hosted... She had done Weekend Update.
0: I guess, well, maybe we did. Tina, Tina Fey became a huge star around this time period,
1: though. Yeah, I mean, she became, like, the hyphen at that point, the hyphen, you know, because she was, like, the right creator, writer, producer, etc., and the star. I mean, I guess she'd already been the head writer on SNL, too. So that, she was a bit of a hyphen in that one as well. So, yeah, uh, 30 Rock still as oh. high a, a joke per minute volume as we're ever going to see on television.
0: Super holds up. If it's still on Netflix, I might watch it today. I'm midway midway through Community. I might not watch it today. But
1: I, I, you know what? I th- you know what? I think Thirty Rockies is on. What's that? I think it's on Peacock. On Peacock?
0: I think so. I might watch it never. <laughs> wow, that is a harsh talk. On Peacock.
1: Is that checky out? That I correct? don't
0: know. I've never heard of Peacock.
1: That's the NBC, uh, NBC streaming. Maybe it's not. No, yeah, it does have. Yeah, they have Peacock. Yeah, that is correct. Whew. I think it's also on Hulu.
0: <laughs> You're still crunching the numbers about Peacock over there.
1: It does not be not appear to be on Hulu. <laughs>
0: You're resetting, oh, no, it is, I guess. resetting it is your password for Peacock.
1: <laughs> it, is on it is on Hulu. Okay. Uh, Talladega Nights, which is a movie that I saw in the theaters and I do not think I've ever seen again.
0: Really? Yeah. All right. We saw it together in theaters.
1: Oh, yeah. We were very excited about this. We were still in the Will Ferrell moment. Uh Another movie I've never, a movie I've never seen. You've Snicks never a seen?
0: Oh, I went to the theaters. Me and Keelan and Nick went to go see Snakes on a Plane together. And there was like three people in the theater. We had a great time. (laughs) That sounds like a great experience. I remember in 2006 was the first year that I discovered listening to music on MySpace. And, uh, oh my God, what was that band called? Starship something. Oh, man. They had a song in Snakes on a Plane, like the theme to Snakes on a Plane And I remember first hearing. I listened to Macklemore for the first time on MySpace. MySpace is kind of underrated long term as a music discovery platform, right? That makes like, sense. Blowing up on MySpace was... This is how we'll talk about TikTok in like 10 years. Uh, Cobra Starship. Uh, Cobra Starship. I remember first hearing about them. And also Gym Class Heroes. Remember that band they ended up getting huge? I remember hearing about them for the first time on MySpace. My
1: recollection is the first time I heard about MySpace was when Andrew Bynum was drafted and he had, like, filled out some questionnaire on MySpace, which, you know, he said embarrassing things because he was a 17-year-old who was about to get drafted.
0: there was some definitely questionable stuff in that questionnaire.
1: Uh, I think that was the 2005 draft, right?
0: I mean, people had started transitioning to Facebook at this point, but, like, Facebook is not a good resource for a lot of things. And, like, MySpace for music discovery was excellent in a lot of ways. Like, you could put four tracks up or whatever as an artist. They were right front and center. You could download music from MySpace. Like, it's kind of My, – MySpace predated stuff like Spotify. It, it got about halfway there in the, I mean, in the iPod the- era.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Is like I'm listening to all this music from 2006, and I'm trying to understand like what was I listening to this to this on in 2006? Because I can't. Like I know I was listening to albums after hearing a song on KXP, but I have no idea where. And I assume that a lot of it probably was on MySpace.
0: You think you were listening? I don't know if you were
1: <clears throat> uh, to KXP
0: to listening to MySpace.
1: Oh, I. I mean, I don't know. Just I don't know where else I would have been listening to it.
0: Maybe you're listening to an it iTunes. i You used to download stuff off, or used to be able to download stuff off hype machine. I probably burned you CDs. I definitely that was
1: probably a lot of it. But
0: like, I would go on hype machine and look at all the top tracks before. I mean, hype machine is way different now. But like, you used to be able to just download music off of there. And Where then, was
1: I listening to Young Folks by Peter Bjorn and John over and over and over again because that song is so good. <laughs> Yep. That was okay, 2006. Last, that was 2006.
0: Man, that that group is really testament to the fact that you only need one track.
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't think they're the biggest testament to that, but they are a testament to that. The last 2006 movie worth talking about is, of course, Borat.
0: <laughs> uh, I do remember the Borat moment. Before then, I'd watch probably around the same time as watching Entourage – the um oh my god the, what is that dude's name? Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah, Sasha Baron Cohen had the, the Ali G show.
1: Yeah, the Ali G show.
0: I, I remember watching that. It was one of those things because I read like Rolling Stone magazine or whatever, and it was like a huge, huge thing in England. But was I remember reading about the British Office and whatever? I used to read NME too. Because I would want to read about music. So I'd go to the fucking Beerian Library. Oh my god. I remember remember reading a review of Bell and Sebastian in, like, Enemy in the Beerian Library and just being like, what a crazy world is out there. Um, But (laughs) reading about the Ali G show and I was like, what the fuck is this? I was like, is it serious? And he would interview, like, politicians. Pretty high-level politicians. It was always unclear if they were in on the joke or not. It was like Sasha Baron Cohen was definitely ahead of his time.
1: Uh, it was it was pretty clear by the most recent uh, Sasha Baron Cohen show. What, what was that? Something, something America,
0: right? Who is America?
1: Yeah, uh, that they were not in on the joke.
0: I mean, I have never seen that, but that's two decades after the Ali G show.
1: They still were not in on the joke. Uh, can I tell you a two thousand six story?
0: Yeah, absolutely, you can. Look, it's so, so only Cl- an hour too.
1: So Clay Bennett buys the team, and the deal is finalized in October. And he comes to meet, like, the new employees of his team, the employees of his new team, on Halloween 2006. And my friend Derek is dressed as LG G for oh Halloween. He, God, he has certain. a very
0: Ali G look. He
1: does. He does. It worked for him. Uh,
0: so he, he met Clay Bennett. There was Was Clay Bennett in on the joke or not? No definitely I, I was not. wasn't uh so i remember seeing borat on the Ali g show or whatever like as a spinoff from that and then when it became a thing it's like oh i remember seeing this on this weird show flight of the concords was another one Have we talked about that what year was flight of the concords uh
1: you know i i made a point to look it up at some point uh not until
0: 2007 though okay well i whatever we're here uh <laughs> I, I remember Flight of the Concords being another one because they had an HBO special, and watching them, Brit and Germaine, and like knowing who they were before the TV show, and it was like, wow, we're in on, you know, this is 2006. You don't really, you don't look at their Instagram, being like, oh shit, I'm not, I have not discovered Flight of the Concords. They have 1.6 million followers. It was like they have an HBO special, and nobody that I know has ever heard of them, right? Yes. I knew nobody else. Like the Ali G show was a massive television show worldwide. But I didn't know a single other person on Earth who'd ever seen it before. And so, like, it it felt like it was edgy by watching it. And that was kind of like early Borat felt like that, and then everybody else got in on it and was like, okay. It was like, the joke started being a lot less funny, but that, that first moment of Borat was pretty exciting.
1: My distinct memory is watching it the Friday after the end of the Sonic season, because, like... Uh, Who had time to watch movies during the season Mm -hmm. at that point?
0: Yeah. Alright, 2006, best summer I've ever had.
1: It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. 2006. It has been remembered.
0: I did not realize that as a uh, 20-whatever-year-old that I was still doing that.